Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. whole service that we're engaging in today, the entire liturgy, it's an act of training for our own spiritual formation. So everything that we do here today, everything that we say, what we hear, is to take us from where we are, uh, which is right when we come into church, like we're full of the world and we're full of inner conflict and maybe we didn't sleep well last night or maybe we're having a fight with somebody or maybe you know, we're sitting three rows away from somebody who did us wrong eight years ago or something, you know, but we're all full of the world. And we're coming into this place sort of outside of time in a sense so that we can be recalibrated. And how we enter is part of that recalibration, the entrance rite in which we read two things. One is called the collect for purity, and the other is either we read the Ten Commandments or a summary of those commandments that Jesus gives us. And what is this beginning of the service, and how does it shape us? The beginning of the liturgy is an act of unmasking. It is a really invasive, disconcerting act of unmasking, if we really take it seriously. Because what we're we're praying in the collect of purity are jaw-dropping words. We're acknowledging that God is the one from whom we can't hide anything. There's nothing in our minds, nothing in our feelings, nothing in our psychology, nothing in our spirits, um, no secrets at all uh, from God. And then that the law that we then read unmasks us even further by saying um, this same God who sees everything also has a standard. And the standard's ultimately for our well-being. And yet, if we really think about that standard of loving that which is highest with everything we are, all heart, all mind, our soul, all soul, all strength. If we really think about that, we'll realize that we've been living fraudulently for a long, long time because we don't do that. And so the beginning of the service is one of unmasking. And this is important for us because human nature uh, is addicted to falsification. We're always trying to appear a little better than we actually are. This is just what we do. And that was true from the garden onward when Adam and Eve a fall into complete rebellion and satanic influence. What do they do instinctively? They hide. They hide from God. They wrap themselves in leaves. That's their way of saying, I'm camouflaged. No one will see me again. Of course, God sees them. But that impulse stays with us, right? So we shelter. Very often, we shelter in lies. So just for example, lots of people want to appear financially solvent, even though they have a horrible gambling addiction and they've missed two credit card payments. Or, or they want to appear very chipper and warm, and yet they just got done screaming at their children you know, for 10 minutes. Or people want to appear easygoing, kind of hippie, live and let live, and they will until you cross them once, and then that'll go away real quick. Or they're a social drinker. They say they're a social drinker. They just begin socially drinking at 8 a.m., you know, little things. Um, or or they, they, they seem very humble until they start talking about all the famous people they know and name-dropping. 
or um, they pretend to get along with you, but as soon as you're not there, they say really terrible things, actually, very critical things, acerbic things, right? But the idea is that we live in this world in which we falsify a lot, and this first portion of the service is, is saying to us, the only way you're going to evolve as a person, the only way you're going to deepen is if, you, is if you're humble enough to be a little honest and not hide everything and not pretend to be more than you are. Um, uh, there's this great uh, line, actually, from Alcoholics Anonymous that says, you can't heal when you hide. You can't heal when you hide. So when we come to God in the beginning of the service through the colic for purity and the law, we're admitting in, in words, we're giving utterance to who we really are and what we really need. We're saying, I can't hide anything from you, and so I need your mercy in order for me to be in your presence. That's what we're doing. This is a, a new section of the service, uh, and we could call it the the word of God, right? Because we just admitted that uh, we, we can't hide anything. And, and we admitted that we're out of sorts with God. And we're now asking God to replace the lies that we have lived with with truth from him. And so we're about to receive data from God because God speaks. God is not a hum. God is not silent. God is not just energy. Uh, God is somebody who addresses people personally and through the written word that is then um, unpacked in a sermon and summarized in a creed. This is the word of God section. And so he's replacing our falsehoods with something far more solid and life-giving. And uh, by the way, Christianity teaches that truth from God comes two different ways. It comes through what's called general revelation, and it also comes through special revelation. What is general revelation? General revelation is intuition about the nature of life. So if you study and discern, uh, you can learn all sorts of truths from God that are implicit in creation. You can learn a lot about biology and chemistry and sociology and psychology and all the rest. Um, and that's general revelation. And from that general revelation, you can deduce some things about uh, about the infinite. You can assume, based on what you see, and this comes from Romans 1, by the way, based on what you see, you can glean that there is a power source behind everything, and that that power source has intelligence, and that um, we can be thankful to that power source because of the variety of goods that we receive in life, and the fact that life can be uh, sustained. And, and general revelation is really important, but in church, we're here to receive special revelation. And special revelation is summarized in scripture, actually. Um, so scripture is special revelation. Um, special revelation means this. It is truth uh, that intuition cannot reveal. Because our intuition only goes so far. But it doesn't teach us everything about God. There are some things about God, very core things about God, we cannot know apart from special revelation. Uh, for example, you can know God is strong or mighty through general revelation, but it takes special revelation to know that God is merciful to the uttermost toward repeat offenders. 
Because that's only known through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And you only find out about the death and resurrection of Jesus through special revelation. So special revelation is often non-intuitive or counterintuitive. It would defy our expectations because we think that if there is a personalized ultimacy on the other side that we can have access to, we have to have access to that God by our own ethical betterment. That once we finally get our acts together, then we'll be acceptable. Because we think in quid pro quo, we think that that's how life works, that's how justice works, you know, no such thing as a free lunch. Well, the New Testament gives us the free lunch that we normally wouldn't believe in. Special revelation brings you the concept of gratuitous mercy. And so we need special revelation uh, in church. Um, and we can't intuit this uh, just through, in, again, th to be repetitive, to, in, through intuition. Um, you know, there's a, a, a statement falsely attributed to St. Francis, where he, by the way, never said it, but preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. To put it succinctly, words are necessary, absolutely necessary. You don't deduce that Christ died for sinners by looking at a beautiful deer in the forest. You need somebody to tell you about a Christ who came into the world to do those things. And so we come to this place to receive special revelation that is counterintuitive about God. And that way we are recalibrated on the inside because our, truth, our, our lies are replaced with truth. And so now we hear the word of God. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. You be seated. I want you to mark this day in your memories. This will be the briefest sermon in Grace Anglican's history. Uh, don't get used to it, but today you, you get this reward. Um, uh, I'm going to be speaking about one aspect, one aspect of this very uh, bizarre occurrence that we remember today, that is Jesus' bodily ascension into heaven. But in order to do that, I want to rewind all the way to the beginning. And you may remember the opening line of the whole Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is, in the beginning, God creates these two realms, the heavens and the earth. Uh, the, the seen and the unseen, the eternal and the temporal. And the heavens in the Bible are the place in which God's immediacy dwells. Uh, the earth in the Bible is the place uh, for created beings and ultimately for human beings who, uh, like princelings, oversee the created order. And those two realms, the heavens and the earth, are interlocked, interconnected, sometimes they blend, but they're distinguishable. And everything is harmonious between them. Until the fall. In Genesis 3, there are a myriad of ways of understanding the fall, but one of them is that heaven and earth, which used to be interlocked in some ways, have now been in, in severely divorced. There is now animosity between the two realms because human beings chose death over life. Uh, and, and chose to distance themselves uh, from what heaven was offering. And, you know, it's interesting, in uh, the marital ceremony, and I've done like a million of them, and I love doing marriage ceremonies, but one of the most moving lines ever in the marital ceremony is as the, the minister ties his stole, this thing, around the hands of the bride and the groom after they've exchanged vows and rings, I declare them to be husband and wife, and then I say the, the famous line, what God has joined together, let no man 
rend asunder, right? You know those words. Uh, and, uh, and, and so what happens in the fall is there's a rending of things that used to belong um, one to another. And so we have a divorce between the heavens and the earth, between the eternal and the temporal. Uh, and sometimes we get little glimpses of what that looks like in our own lives whenever there's a, a, a sudden break between that which is eternal and that which is temporal. Uh, we see this very often in funerals, this divorce between heaven and earth in funerals, where a person's body, the, the person who is laying in the casket, their body has been, um, has been divorced from their, their spirit, their life essence. Uh, right? And that's what happens in the creation narrative in the Bible. You have God making a man out of the mud, right? And then breathing into that man something of eternity. That is, the breath of life enters the man. Well, well, I noticed this as a young child. I was eight years old when I attended my first funeral. My grandfather passed away from a very aggressive lung cancer caused by asbestos because they didn't know what they were, what effect asbestos would have, or if they did know, they didn't tell anybody. And so he died a very painful death. And, um, and, but my parents knew how close I was to him, and so they brought me to the funeral and I couldn't see him because I was little, and the coffin was up high on this platform. And so my father picked me up so I could look inside and see him. And I was totally unaffected. And my parents were wondering why. And, and they said, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah. And they said, yeah, I'm fine. I said, because that's not him. It's not, and it's not that he didn't look like him. He did. But that is not the same man. That's not the man that I used to play baseball with. It's not the man who used to you know, spoil me rotten with candy that rotted out my teeth. It's not the man that uh, you know would play a tag in the yard and and, and spend uh, every day babysitting me until my parents got home from work. It's not him, because the energy of who he was was no longer there. I'm not saying that our bodies aren't us; they obviously are, but we're more than our bodies. That's what I'm saying. So, uh, so we, sometimes we get a glimpse uh, of that divorce between the eternal and the temporal, right? Uh, and, and how is that cured? How is that crisis cured? How is my grandfather's funeral cured? But how is the, the, the creation that has distanced itself from a creator and the war between them cured? Well, in a myriad of ways, but one of those ways is the ascension of Jesus Christ, that's part of the meaning of the ascension. What is the ascension? 40 days after Jesus' resurrection, his body was enveloped by another realm. It was taken up, taken in, and disappeared from our sight. It's fascinating. Jesus didn't, uh, you know, after his resurrection, simply grow old and get a book deal. He didn't just vanish. You know, he didn't just, um, like... Uh, uh, hitchhike his way to India, but there are tales that he did that. It, that didn't happen, though. You know, he didn't appear in the Americas and to the Angel Moroni. Like it didn't, uh, it didn't happen either. That's not true. Um, but Jesus didn't simply uh, vanish. Instead, uh, he was taken up uh, physically and visibly, and then just and then and then was enveloped in the new realm. But I want to think about that for a minute because Jesus retains his physicality into the next realm. He brings it with him. Uh, Jesus' physical body enters the eternal realm. All the uh, earth, earth, earthy stuff about him, right? His hair follicles and his nervous systems and his melanin and his uh, active brain with two hemispheres and his aging lines and his scars from teenage acne and then his brutal scars from his own death. All of that 
all of that, his complete humanity is taken up into the next realm. And then that, that humanity lives eternally as it is. I think that's an amazing consideration that when we think of God after the ascension, we must think of a Mediterranean face. That Mediterranean face is no longer separable from the eternal. They are wedded together, the temporal and the eternal, uh, brought together, heaven and earth back together. Um, Because of the ascension, humanity and physicality now lives eternally. Now, that's part of the meaning of the ascension. As Jesus' body enters the unseen realms, we see in a new way the marriage between heaven and earth, the blending and reconciliation between body and spirit, the blending together of the now and the then. The reunification of all things is more than hinted at. It is secured at Jesus' own ascension. Now, what does this mean for us? A lot of things. What is Jesus doing in his, in his ascended state for us? A lot of things. Here are three, super briefly. First, the author to the Hebrews says that the physical ascended Jesus at God's right hand, the Father's right hand, intercedes for us because he is a high priest who, because of his physicality, can sympathize with us. So we have a permanent intercessor. If you ever think that nobody cares for you and nobody's praying for you and you're not on anybody's mind, you are on the mind of the only one who endures forever, right? Endlessly interceding for you. So he's doing that. Also, he has universalized his person because before the ascension of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth was, well, from Nazareth. He only traveled about 50 miles outside that zip code. He spoke maybe three languages, and he ate like, you know, 18 different kinds of meals in his life, probably. But he, he was used to a certain type of terrain, certain types of people, spoke to thousands, no doubt. But his, his effect, um, at least his one-to-one effect, was somewhat limited then because he was only in one place at one time. But after the ascension, Jesus becomes now the cosmic universal Lord of the world, fulfilling kind of odd things that he used to say to his disciples, like in the midst of his ministry, he said, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, I will be in the midst of them. I wonder if they ever scratched their heads and be like, no, I was with Nathaniel yesterday uh, and we were at a pub and you weren't there. Um, but but this that all of a sudden becomes true because now when they pray in the name of that same Messiah, that same Messiah is alongside them. Like that same Christ is there. So the the post-ascension Jesus fills all in all, to quote the Apostle Paul, and is everywhere. He's with you uh, when uh, when you are suffering, when you are sad, when you are devastated, when you are fired, when your your friends betray you, and when you're happy, joyous, delighted, and everything is working out really well. You have a companion, and it's the universal Christ who said right before his ascension, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the age. He said that right after he lifted up, you know, but I'm going to be with you always, meaning my ascension is not going to take me away from you. I'm going to be more with you now than ever before. So he's interceding for us. He's universally present with us. And lastly, Jesus said right before he died, I'm running ahead of you because I have something to make for you. I have a place to prepare for you. I have a home that you're going to, and a home that you're going to, uh, you're going to belong in your physical form. 
This is the one who said, I'm the resurrection and the life. So whatever our future is in that future home, it will most certainly be a glorified physicality in which all the things that you now enjoy will even be better than, even more physical than if we can imagine it. So because of the ascension, friends, the great divorce is beginning to end. The remarriage of heaven and earth is here and nothing, nothing, nothing will ever separate you from the undying, everlasting love of God. Amen. A word about prayer. Uh, Through God's word, God speaks to us. After we've received that word, it's now our turn to speak to him. And so uh, that's what we're going to do. uh, As as we pray, we are, by praying, implicitly confessing that there's now a relationship. Because we've received something from God, some truth to replace our lives. And now we have a relationship with with this Lord of life. And we're going to engage with him by um, addressing him. And so uh, um, prayer is this, uh, is this gift of grace because Jesus said that we, or this, the New Testament teaches that we can boldly come before the throne of grace and make our petitions known. And it's because God has been gracious to us in Christ and has dealt with the human crisis and the universal crisis. And now we have access to God and therefore we have a priesthood of all believers. We can come to God as intercessors as the old priests used to. And so Christians uh, regard prayer as hugely impactful. It's hugely impactful and uh, very central to our practice that we rely um, on God to do for us and to do for the world what we ourselves cannot manufacture. Um, Now, so um, I have to relate this to something that is happening right now, this horrific crisis that we um, all uh, read about or seen uh, snippets of the footage regarding this horrible school shooting that just occurred in Texas where so many uh, were killed. And right afterward, you had two things happen. You had people saying that, uh, politicians mostly, that their thoughts and prayers were with the victims and the victims' families, and then other people who hate the phrase thoughts and prayers saying you should never say thoughts and prayers. Okay, so when people say thoughts and prayers, sometimes they don't mean it, and it's empty sentiment, and it does sound ridiculous. Um, but I was, I, I, there was this internet meme that had thoughts and prayers crossed out, and then the words uh, policy and change writ large. Let me tell you how much I hate that. It's snide and stupid, um, because thoughts and prayers, in the real sense of them, that is, thoughts, real discernment, and real wrestling um, with, with actual issues, thoughts, and prayers, that is, actually and deeply wrestling and engaging with God, is the foundation of all good change. Like, there is no good change without that. Like, you do not have good uh, personal or policy changes without first saying, I am no doubt out of sorts in my own person. The only way I will be uh, in, in my right self is to align with the highest possible person and good. It is only then, it's only then that I'll be changed and I'll be thinking with a sober right mind as I engage regarding persons and policy. And so uh, I, I think policy changes are great, but we also need as Christians to be people of thoughts and prayers, but taken rightly and actually doing it, not just talking about it, um, because that way we'll be able to function better in society. Um, because by the way, if we create policy without heavenly formation, we give birth to nightmares. Like we become part of the crisis later on.
So in prayer, what we do is we vocalize uh, our needs to God in various areas. And scripture talks about these various areas. We pray for government and government officials. We pray for the church universal. We pray for the church locally. We pray for individual needs of believers here. We pray in gratitude for those who have died in Christ. And then we can offer prayers in our own voice, which is really important too. But what's fascinating in this section of prayer, uh, it culminates with a big prayer that we say not standing but kneeling. And that's the prayer of confession. It's probably the most important prayer that we all say in our own voices. You know, in some churches, the minister just prays in the stead of everybody else and offers a confession from their lips. But let me say, if there's ever a prayer that we all need to utter from our own mouth, it's the prayer of confession in which we admit before God and other people that we are part of the world's crisis. We are, that we are deeply, deeply mistaken and flawed and broken on the inside that that's a big part of our story, and that our biggest need is reconciliation uh, with God. Um, And by the way, reconciliation is so incredibly important. You know this in terms of person-to-person dynamics. I don't know about you, but it is true of me that I can be kept up all night if I'm out of sorts with somebody that I love. It can really afflict me. And what confession says is that we are out of sorts with God And God has caused reconciliation in Christ. Um, And so long as we are, to quote Martin Luther, simul justus et peccator, or simultaneously justified and still sinful, it is good for us, good practice for us, to keep confessing our peccator, or sinful part, uh, until we are glorified. Um, And uh, Paul, by the way, St. Paul says, whenever you approach the Lord's table, it is important that you don't come cavalierly, or presumptuously, as if you don't have any sin that needs to be pardoned and therefore don't really have any need for this feast, but to come forward repentantly and honestly about our own failures and fraudulencies and being reminded constantly of the pardon um, that is in Christ. By the way, um, that pardon is heard after the confession of sin five times because we don't think absolution um, sinks into into us very well. Sin, by the way, causes us to be blind to sin. It's weird, but sin causes blindness to sin, and sin causes rejection of the gospel. So that's why Cranmer, when he designed this liturgy, said, the minister will give you an absolution declaring your pardon, and if you don't believe the minister, here are two quotes from Jesus that say the same thing. If you don't believe Jesus, um, here is St. Paul, and if you don't believe St. Paul, here is St. John. In other words, the whole canon of the New Testament is unified to declare to you that you really are loved and forgiven, and one of these days you're going to believe it. That's the idea, and that's something about our prayers before God. So we're about to approach the, the Lord's table now, and so this is a really important, I mean, it's, it's really central to the ministry of the Word, actually. Um, this, is a, this is a meal that, uh, that now takes us from the conceptual to the physical, right? So we're moving now uh, from beautiful, life-giving ideas to those ideas being solidified uh, in the form of a meal that Jesus instituted and said that he wanted us to keep doing. Um, and you, 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 uh, you may know that dinner or table fellowship, at least within Jesus' day, was a wonderful way, and it's still true in our day too, but it was a little different then, 
uh, a way to establish bonds, friendship between people. If you really wanted to be buddies, you invited them over for a dinner, right? And you would have a seven-course dinner with these people. By the way, if you ever want to hear a fantastic sermon about this, uh, Dr. Shepson preached one on the, um, the, the meals of uh, Luke and Acts and how Jesus engaged with dinner parties fascinating stuff. That's how Jesus created bonds with people and then also made people terribly nervous because Jesus would have dinner with vagabonds and people weren't into that, Um, except the vagabonds who were very into it, right? And now Jesus opens up his table to us, you know, the vagabonds. So, um, and and he invites uh, us to participate in a meal that helps us understand what his cross was all about. This is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Now, uh, you know, different churches teach different things about Holy Communion. If I were to summarize, like, what Anglicans teach uh, about communion, what's happening here at the table, I can explain that, I think, uh, fairly quickly. Um, but uh, but it, had, it has to, I have to offer you some context in order to really understand it, because our official position about what communion is comes in a very brief document called the 39 Articles of Religion. That was written during the English Reformation. What was happening before the Reformation, at least for about 800 years, uh, was uh, was that the the laity, that is, all of Yin's guys, who are not wearing all this this fabulous stuff, um, the laity were typically not permitted to come to the Lord's table except maybe once a year, and only receiving then the bread, never the wine. So once a year, that's it. Um, and that happened for a long, long time for very complex reasons. But there was a way that back then the clergy sort of allowed people to participate in, in, in an aspect of the supper. So they would do various things. One of the things that the ministers would do is that they would do what are called elevations, where they would hold the elements of communion way above their head so that people could see them. The thought was if you stared at it, you would receive spiritual benefit. Other times, that same, the consecrated bread was put in what's called a monstrance. Some of you have seen these. It looks like a golden sunburst with a clear center, glass center, and it was put in there, and people would walk it around, march it around, and people would worship it because they believed that that was the physical body of Jesus. And other times that the, the elements of communion were put in a box called an ombre or a tabernacle, and people would pray in that direction, believing Jesus was physically present in the box. But people wouldn't actually participate in the supper itself. So when the English Reformation came along, they, they noted that Jesus did not say, stare at this. Jesus said, take and eat this, take and drink this. And that wasn't just said to clergy, that was said to everybody. And so um, this is what the Articles of Religion teach, by the way. It's very good, it's beautiful. Um, Cranmer wrote, the elements of the Lord's Supper were not by Christ's ordinance reserved, carried about, lifted up, or worshipped, but that we should duly use them. And, and then he writes, both bread and wine are not to be withheld from the laity. Um, the idea is that uh, the New Testament's emphasis and our emphasis is on receiving the Lord's Supper. Take and eat this, take and drink this. That's for you. And so when you do that today, realize that you're receiving something beautiful from God, that that you've been invited to a feast and that God is providing for you. And that the real value in this feast is when you take it and receive it in faith that Jesus meant what he said when he claimed you as his own. Um, Now, there's also the question, what um, what do we believe occurs in this supper? Um, 
And sometimes it's a little hard to nail down. There is a mysterious element to it, and I won't deny that. But the, the Anglican statement of faith essentially says what it's not, what communion isn't. On the one hand, we teach that communion is not transubstantiation. What does that mean? That the bread and wine miraculously become physical flesh and physical blood in the Lord's Supper. We do not believe that. We don't think that's actually what Scripture teaches. On the other hand, we don't believe that it's only a symbol or a memory device, a memory trigger, like so that when we see bread, we see wine, we have a distant memory of what Jesus did on Calvary for us. The reason we don't believe that is because St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if you receive the bread and the wine unworthily, meaning without faith, without repentance and faith, you can become sick or even die. And symbols don't do that to people. Moreover, St. Paul says in the same letter that when you participate in the bread, you have a koinonia in Greek or a relationship to uh, a connection to the body. And when you participate in the wine, you have a connection to the blood. That these, two, these things are related to us somehow uh, through the bread and the wine. So Anglicans believe, along with the Reformed churches believe, um, that um, in what's called a heavenly presence, that's the, the words the Articles of Religion says, the bread remains bread, the wine remains wine, and yet through this meal, the Holy Spirit, often again called the, Holy, the Spirit of Jesus in the New Testament, connects us with Christ. There is something of presence that is occurring because of uh, the Holy Spirit's activity, and when we receive this meal, we are... Um, the gospel is becoming personalized for each of us in a particular way. So whenever you receive communion today from Father Shepson or myself or from our wine bearers, you listen for the words that the blood of Christ shed for you, the body of Christ given for you, that it's for you. It's for you. And so in other words, what the Holy Spirit is doing in this moment is taking history and personalizing it. It said, yes, this was true a long time ago, and in this moment, in this moment, the Holy Spirit is here to convince you compellingly that it's true for you. And then you become the bearers of the real presence of God. That's the idea. The last portion of our service is all about repurposing us. Uh, so uh, the, the world, at least the, the calamitous aspects of the world, ha have a very dark purpose in mind for all of our lives. But now that we've confessed our error and heard the word of truth and been fed by the supper of truth, we're now able, with a little uh, greater strength and uh, energy and zeal, to leave this place and to encounter the world in a way that's healthier because we have been given health from God. That's the understanding. So we're being repurposed by this worship service. The last aspects of the service, which are the Lord's Prayer, the post-communion prayer, the blessing, all have that same effect. That um, The Lord's Prayer is put by Cranmer always after we receive the word and the sacrament because Cranmer thinks at this point, we'll finally be convinced of God's gracious paternity, that we'll finally be able now to confess God, not just as the father of Jesus, but as our father by adoption. So we can all say our father after we've received these gifts. The post-communion prayer is all about now that we're leaving, we can't live here, right? The, we don't have that much rent money. We can't live here, but we have to go home. And, we ha and going home, by the way, is complicated, right? Because not all of us go not all of us go home to the same kind of homes, right? Because maybe you live with somebody who's aggressive or someone who's been destabilized 
Maybe you are dealing with a child that is in active antipathy with you. Or maybe you're, uh, you're, um, you have addiction problems at home. Or maybe, you know, there's a myriad of problems. But the hope is that now that you've been recalibrated a little bit from God, maybe there's hope that things can change in those various spheres, that it doesn't always have to be the same way. Darkness doesn't always have to win. We don't have to become cynical. There's this services to birth a new hope of alteration. Um, and then the last thing is a blessing. Uh, a blessing. That, that means God is establishing his everlasting favor and, uh, and benevolence toward you. Uh, and this is all very deliberate at the end of the service because at the beginning, near beginning of the Bible, after the fall, uh, Genesis uh, 3 uh, offers a word pronounced by God over the serpent, the woman, and the man, and it's not blessed. It's the opposite of that. It's cursed are you, right? So you are now falling under divine disfavor. But because of the mediation of Jesus and because of the accomplishment of God on your behalf, the definitive and final word of God over your life is neither negative nor is it ambivalent. It's entirely and beautifully good and perfect. So it's blessing. You're leaving this place as blessed people. Um, and so that's the Anglican service, friends. It's a way of taking us through uh, the gospel message week in and week out, discipling us in the gospel from the, the, the places in our lives that are shadowy and decrepit to the uh, audacious love of God in Christ Jesus that was localized in history and time for us, uh, to being fed by him in this miracle supper, and then being released back into the world to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. That's how Cranmer wanted you to understand yourself. Now you're the living sacrifice. You've been fed and prepared to offer yourself over, to say over to you, to God. Realize they took your life.